Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's session on the down part of shift left, shift down. I am Rex Black, president of RBCS, a worldwide testing and quality assurance firm serving clients ranging from small startups to Fortune 20 global enterprises. Since 1994, RBCS has delivered insight and confidence to hundreds of clients around the world. We have a team of international consultants that deliver customized training, consulting, and expert services to companies that are looking to improve their test and quality assurance practices. In this session, uh, I am happy to welcome Ed Weller, a man that I've uh, worked with for uh, probably verging on a couple decades, I would think. Ed is an internationally recognized expert in software engineering and in particular software measurement. His focus on quality started with his work on the Apollo program with General Electric and was reinforced during his work on mainframe systems at Honeywell and Group Bowl as a hardware test software and systems engineer manager and technical fellow and as a process group manager on the Motorola Iridium project. So in some cases, Ed can say, yes, it really was rocket science. In the past 17 years, he has worked with small to very large companies that develop engineering and IT applications to improve their quality and productivity. Ed is the principal in integrated productivity solutions, providing solutions to companies that seek to improve their productivity. If you have any questions during the course of the webinar, you may submit them throughout the presentation via your webinar interface, but please note that they are answered only at the end. So we're going to jump right into it, and I'm going to hand off the present presenter mode to Ed. Okay, good morning, everyone, and thank you for attending. Rex has introduced me. Uh, don't necessarily know who you are, but uh, the reasons for this list of people are the ones that can use root cause analysis uh, to resolve problems in their organization. Uh, we'll cover the definition of root cause, why we see defects in software, uh, what does the shift left and then shift down mean, and then we'll uh, talk about the techniques. And there's a section on tips to starting to use root cause analysis that we don't, I do not intend to get to, but it is, we'll give you an idea where to start. Uh, begin with the term bug is overused and it's also inaccurate in our business. Everything is a bug. In reality, what we have is a sequence of things that cause failure. We start with an error, which is a human action. Somebody makes a mistake and does something incorrectly. That introduces a defect into some part of the documentation, component, or code in a system, or test cases. And eventually, that can lead to a failure, which is a deviation from the expected result. Now, failures occur in test or use of the product by our customers and users. Defects, on the other hand, are found uh, by reviews, inspections, and static analyzers. And those are a result of the errors or mistakes that we've made. So, if we use those definitions, how do we attack this problem? Uh, we also have two more definitions. The cause of the failure is really the one that's identified by the developer or tester when debugging that failure in test or use, meaning that you've identified the proximate defect in the product that caused the failure. Root cause is that underlying error that the person made uh, when they initiated some uh, action or some product development. Uh, if we eliminate the root cause, we reduce the number of errors and fewer defects. And you get some very interesting returns on investment when you do that. Shift left just says you find the defects sooner. Uh, you find them in system tests before you ship it to your customers or in other testing before you go into system tests or some sort of static analysis in terms of reviews, inspections, or pairing. 
which is an extremely powerful way to eliminate defects. Shift down says you just reduce the number of errors. And that's what we're going to talk about. Before, well, let's put it this way. What I found in going into a company that had initiated a root cause analysis program that turned out to be a total disaster because it didn't work is that they didn't understand some things about software development. First is that defects are just the way, the natural consequence of the way we work. And that doesn't mean we have to accept them, though, okay? And the organizations that have learned how to prevent these have uh, seen nearly defect-free or failure-free software as it goes into a production. Uh, yes, professionals over time learn how to reduce the defects they make. That's experience. We all learn, but some of us learn better than others. So what is, can we come up with a systematic way to do prevention and start to get the 10 to 1 reductions in defect injection rates that have been seen, or believe it or not, 100 to 1 are better deliverable quality levels. And we'll talk about why we do this and how it's used. Uh, and the techniques that are used for root cause analysis. It really is different for software. If you think of industrial accidents, they tend to be single events with a very high cost of failure. Think of Three Mile Island, and I actually had somebody who was on that uh, post-mortem for Three Mile Island in a class I did. Very interesting talking to him. If you look at the TWA 800, uh, we'll use that as an example later, chemical plants, other big single events. But in software, we have literally uh, an inexhaustible supply of defects. When you talk about million-line products that are shipping one to two defects per every thousand lines of code. Uh, so you can get you know, 1,000 to 2,000 defects in a million lines of code. Fortunately, not all of those will cause failure, but a large number of them do. And quite often in software, we most often, we do have a lower cost per failure but I am aware of a $1.4, $1.5 billion loss to a one-line one line code that was left in the program. Cost the company about $1.5 billion. Bucks. Uh, so the, this fact that we have large numbers of defects does affect the way we do root cause analysis, the whole process. You can't do RCA on all failures when you've got a large number of them, so you want to have some selection process, and hopefully it's systematic rather than just totally random. Uh, what we'd like to find is common causes, because if you find a common cause across multiple defects, one analysis and solution wipes out a whole bunch of problems. And we'll also talk about the philosophy of the change. In other words, we do a root cause analysis, and what's the next time that that can actually be visible or seen in the development process? And this last statement says, if it's not a problem that's going to repeat, don't analyze it. Or there's something else. If it's something that occurred many years ago, doing root cause analysis is probably not going to get you to the underlying error that was made because nobody will remember what they did two years ago. And I've actually seen companies that want to do analysis of a problem introduced five years ago, and the developer was gone. Well, you know, chances of finding the root cause are slim and none. So what do we do? What are we trying to do when we do root cause analysis? It says. Looking at defects and failures, eliminate the introduction of faults. And that gets us back to under eliminating the human error that introduced it. Now, the nice thing about one of the methods I'm going to show is that the secondary goal is earlier detection and correction or prevention of that defect from propagating into the product later. So we can actually, from root cause analysis, identify a prevention method, but also find some detection methods that work earlier 
as opposed to what our customer find the problem. So let's look at some of the uh, the process over of processes. We have to have problem sources. That means the defects. We have to have the failures and defects from production tests and reviews. We need issues raised in retrospectives. Uh, what I've seen quite often in the agile environment, I look at retrospectives from sprint after sprint after sprint, and guess what? They're almost cut and paste. Nothing is being done about the problems. Here is a method that will let you do something about the problems and not waste your time you know, worrying about the same problem over and over again. And you can also apply it to anything that's causing inefficiency in the organization. In fact, uh, when I developed this course years ago, it was for a company that basically had a failing root cause analysis program, and we did root cause analysis of the, pro of the process, and it was quite interesting to see how that turned out. <clears throat> there are barriers to defect prevention. You've got to have the data. You have to have sufficient description of the defect or information about the problem, failure, so that you can actually do an analysis. You've got to have open teams. That says, first of all, the person who made the error has got to be a part of the team because nobody can really see inside their mind or go back and say, why did they make a mistake? And it's useful to have peers of that person to help to further flesh out the problem, especially when you start doing what we'll see as a cause-effect analysis. And ultimately what it says, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. You shouldn't be going outside of a root cause analysis meeting talking about what went on. It's a sure way of killing the process. And if you use that data to appraise personnel, that is the quickest way to kill it. You know, we make mistakes. All of us do it one time or another. The real problem is when we do not learn from those mistakes. And that says you've got a problem in the organization. If people hide the mistakes they make, they're going to keep making them and other people won't learn from them. So you've got to have an infrastructure to make this successful. Your project management side, if you want to call it that, it's just basically resource allocation. You've got to have resources that are set aside for doing the root cause analysis itself and then for applying some amount of effort to the solution and creating action plans and making sure that these changes get done. If you look at the engineering or development side, you've got to analyze the defect data from different sources uh, and then eliminate the errors that cause them. On the engineering and test side, this also applies, okay? The test personnel typically would not necessarily be in the root cause analysis of a development problem, but they sure can apply it to their work products. And why didn't we find that problem sooner? Why didn't we think about it? Why didn't we realize that we needed to test in this area? And one of the examples I use in the on-site class actually goes to a problem. It was a mistake I made. And why it was made and what we could have done to find that problem before we let our customer find it. And anytime you mess up the amount field on a check going into a database, you've got a problem. Uh, are there alternatives to doing root cause analysis? Well, uh, can a third party actually look at what's going on and say, why did the individual make the mistake? Not very likely. People like to say, well, we can have gray beards come in and look at a problem and tell us what we did wrong. Uh, doesn't work very well in software. In the engineering analysis, say, of TWA 800, or you look at the shuttle disaster, and so on. Yeah, you can look at that from a straightforward engineering analysis. Um, and bottom line is that if you don't plan the process, if you don't 
allocate resources to root cause analysis, it's just not going to get done. What does it cost? Well, you really need to train people so that they understand what's expected of them when they do an analysis. You need to have plans that allocate resources to do it. You've got to have a process for it to make sure that the teams will execute the, cost, the root cause analysis correctly and in the same way across the board. You've got recurring costs, basically the ones that every time you have a causal analysis meeting, you spend some time on it. And these don't have to, I can go through, and I've seen people go through, 5, 10, 15 minutes for one problem. Sometimes it's going to take longer because it's more complex. Uh, you want to make sure that you put the effort in that is appropriate for the kind of problem you're looking at. Uh, you've got to analyze defect data. You've got to propose actions to correct them. You may be as simple as changing a checklist, adding to a checklist, small changes to the way you do your work. There should be feedback to the organization because team over here finds a problem, and lo and behold, if they tell the rest of the organization what they found, two or three other people will say, hey, no, I make the same mistake. And that cross-organizational learning is important. And you really should measure the root cause analysis activities properly. doesn't mean that you track who made the mistake. I saw that happen at one company. The first time they got a result that said somebody hadn't done their job properly, they demoted the individual. You want to guess how much more root cause analysis got done in that company? Okay, where's the payback? Uh, already said, one analysis session might attack an entire class of defects. I've seen that happen. Uh, you can find similar problems in production before the failures occur. You see something that's wrong, you go through and look for other places where that same problem exists, and you say, whoops, we better fix that before we have a problem. And you end up making changes based on data and analysis and not on opinion. If you've ever worked on a project where you say, well, somebody says, we're going to do better this time because we learned from the last one. And the question I would ask is, what are you doing differently, and what did you learn, and how did you learn it? Or is it just wishful thinking that we're going to do things better? We've seen 13 to 1 re uh, returns on investment in uh, different conferences. Uh, a reference that's at the end, uh, they talked about a 50% reduction in defects injected, and depending upon what kinds of defects they've reduced, you know, they got did they get a two-to-one improvement? I mean, a 50% reduction in cost, or was it larger? They didn't say in that article. An element of this that's important is what I call defect maturity, meaning how does the organization understand and think about defects? And these are the Typically, the way they group these in the past in terms of causes, there's communications issues, and the rest will go and look at each of these five in order. You think of communications noise. Uh, when you have, here I'm showing an example of three, five, or ten people on a team, and the number of pairwise communications paths between the people. And with ten people, guess what? Forty-five paths mean forty-five opportunities to actually lose information. Okay, two people don't talk to each other. There's a gap in the knowledge needed to solve the problem. Okay, or you get incorrect transfer of information between two people. It causes a problem downstream. Defect gets introduced, you have a failure. You can have multiple of these drop out. Or you could have one person talk to another person, talk to a third person, and if you've ever played telephone tag, you know that somewhere along the line, the information gets transformed. It's not uh, done correctly. And as a result, uh, 
you end up with a defect getting into the product, failure downstream. And this goes on, and you know, why do you think agile teams try to limit to fewer than 10 people? When you get more than that, this number goes up as a factorial, if you're familiar with that, and the number of communications passed gets huge. And if you don't keep that constrained or have a way of solving it, you're going to introduce problems like that. Eventually you have a very large loss of information. Short-term memory, basically 7 plus or minus 2. You can remember seven things. It gets much larger than that. They drop out. Some people it's 5 plus or minus 2. If you're interrupted, and I was actually in a class where we were doing uh, one of these you know, exercises that demonstrates that. Partway through, a car alarm went off next door, and I was 1. It wasn't plus or minus two. It was one minus one. Interruptions occur all the time. Phone rings. Uh, you've got your boss coming in asking for something. You've got coworkers. Ask yourself how often do you get one hour of uninterrupted work? And every time you get interrupted, you essentially pop your stack or push your stack. And when you pop it back, something doesn't come. Multitasking. We think we can multitask. All kinds of studies show that multitasking reduces efficiency and introduces errors. Because every time you get context switch, you've got to reload after the interrupt, and you just miss information. Cognitive dissonance, term that uh, uh, Dr. Graham used a long time ago in a conference I went to, says basically we see what we know is there, not what's really there, and as a result, we end up doing something that doesn't match uh, what is really intended. Complexity, and if you ever read work, uh, anything written by Bob Glass, he is really a one-sharp guy. But he stated one time, the most persistent defects are related to inherent complexity of the product to be developed, and that design complexity exceeds our level of understanding, meaning we just don't know enough what we're doing without doing some deep analysis and thinking about it. And that says that if you don't get the design complexity understood, that the code isn't going to match the complexity needed to do the design properly, which leads me to wonder about code complexity measures. If you're doing something complex, the code may be complex. Processes. A uh, lot of data around and a lot of studying that shows that the process or lack of it or incorrect process, it can cause as many as 85% of the defects in the product. That's a huge number. Uh, so it may seem overly large, but those numbers have been verified by uh, people who have looked into the problem. And that basically says that the capability of the individuals is not a major contributor to defect work product. New people on board, yeah. You've got a junior programmer, you know, wet behind the ears, uh, coming into a product development. They're going to make mistakes. But the process ought to cover that by, you know, either mentoring or shadowing or reviews of their work or any of another. The point here is that we talked about five defect causes, and if the organization doesn't understand that, then their root cause analysis outcome tends to be limited to not non-threatening analysis. They don't want to talk about it, and preventive actions are just basically uh, very bland. Uh, they don't get you what you need, and pretty soon people start saying, why am I wasting time doing this? Because we never do anything to fix the problem. Um, and again, getting back to defect causes, and if you look at that root cause taxonomy that we just talked about, that people are not usually the cause. If people are the cause, maybe they need more training, maybe they need uh, more background, more mentoring, and so on. And if we 
see that that defect data is then tied into the individual performance appraisals or merit system. The whole defect prevention process, if you're doing inspections, the correct use of test data, it's all going to be compromised. And I'd ask, does your company or organization have a policy talking about how you use defect data? Uh, I did a talk one time, said there's gold in them in our hills, meaning if you use defect data properly, it's you're mining a gold mine. If you use it improperly, you're basically poisoning the organization. Okay, varieties of root cause analysis. Um, the ones that I have seen, and we'll talk about each of these sort of light bulb, meaning the developer says, oh, it's obvious why I made that mistake. Well, sometimes it isn't obvious, and sometimes a very short session with multiple people will clarify the unobvious aspect of the problem and why they made the mistake. Um, better than nothing, but it's you know, informal, and you run the risk that it just won't be very effective. A 5Y has a lot of popularity in the business. Uh, there's a method that I ran across called Apollo, and it's one I like. We'll see why. And then you have the Ishikawa or fishbone analysis. And I think there's a place for all three of them, and it's going to depend upon your organization, uh, kinds of defects you're seeing, and uh, oh, some of the other things to talk about. The real problem with a lot of these methods is there's no real identification outside of Apollo. Is when do you stop and when do you really are you not finished? If you stop too soon, you won't get to an actionable root cause. If you go too far, you get into an endless discussions looking for the perfect answer. And one of the things that Apollo does is say, once you reach a point where the problem is outside of your control or can't do anything about it, you don't spend more time on that. The counter to that is you got to make sure that you just aren't whitewashing and say, oh, I can't control that or it's too hard to find. And I've heard those excuses given. Uh, what is the expectation? In my mind, when you do root cause analysis, uh, prevention is the goal, but earlier detection is a good thing because sometimes the prevention method is not going to be 100% or most of the time. Detection then is a safety net behind the uh, prevention activity. And I've heard phrases like, oh, system tests should have found a problem. Well, that's not a root cause. Requirements were incomplete. That's not a root cause. Uh, we need to understand that a root cause is an actionable item that somebody can take, do something to prevent it from happening again. Uh, sometimes they are out of your control. Uh, you have to pass them to a different team. That's part of why I think having several people in the root cause analysis session help. Um, and when you're done, if you group these into batches of the causes, um, or sometimes if you group the defects that appear to have the same defect type, that can help you identify a common cause. I haven't seen a lot. I mean, they talk about it theoretically, that you can look at all logic errors that have been made by programmers. And if you do root cause analysis of those, you're going to find common causes. I've never seen that, and I keep searching for papers that will actually demonstrate that that's true. Maybe one of these days will come out. Why are we looking at three methods? Well, broader knowledge is always useful and good. Uh, fishbone, I see that being used in some companies, and they end up trying to stuff their analysis into one of the bones on the fish, and I think it limits the thinking process. Uh, Five-Y and Apollo, and that's in the uh, Gano reference at the end, 
are different, and I think they give you a better understanding. And I will look at, I want to look at Apollo first because once you've seen that, 5Y is easy to go through. The reason I like Apollo is, uh, that's the term that the game will use for it, is it, it assumes that there may be multiple causes for defect. And we want to find the cause or the cause that gives us the best option for resolving or preventing the problem from occurring again. It does not presuppose a cause, and it also help, keeps you from converging too soon. And they talk about having the condition which allows the problem and a trigger. So if we look at uh, a fire explosion, you have to have an ignition source, you've got to have combustibles, and you've got to have oxygen. If you have any one of those missing, you're not going to have a fire explosion. If you look at the TW800, which occurred you know, many years ago, they had all three of those. The eventual solution which came along that was a prevention process was to purge the fuel tanks with nitrogen. But it took a while to come up with a way of doing that that didn't weigh the plane down to the point that you couldn't fly it. Before that, they did prevention by doing better inspection. The key phrase in Apollo is caused by. Essentially, we do a cause-effect diagram, although in reality, you're going from the effect back to the cause. So you have the primary effect, which is a thing that you want to stop. And you say, okay, what is the condition that existed, and then what is the action or trigger that caused it? And if you're doing this analysis for very complex or serious problems, you want evidence that backs that up. The evidence might very well be uh, the defect report uh, or the failure report that was submitted uh, for the problem you're looking at. And you have an and condition there, which means that if you can prevent the condition or the action, then you're not going to have that failure. You then may, you keep working to the right. Uh, you take a condition and say that is caused by, again, a condition cause and an action cause. Sometimes you can't find two of them. Don't worry about it. Just keep on going. If you If it's not obvious and after a couple minutes of discussion you can't find something, just go down the single condition or the single action, regardless of which you want to call it. Uh, when you have this diagram and then start working on the solution, we've identified four boxes there of causes, and your prevention solution might be for any or multiple of those. There may be a uh, detection solution that is also in place in one of the uh, uh, situations. And that helps you then uh, come up with a solution which is going to work better. 5Y is less structured. Uh, you don't have the action condition evidence uh, as part of the process typically, although you may end up discussing it. The thing I've run into is the number five, that I've seen people stop when they get to five because it's a 5Y process. I've also seen them at two or three Ys uh, have actually come to the point, but they say, oh, we got to do five. So five becomes the goal as opposed to identifying the underlying root cause. Depending on the kinds of problems you have and what you're doing, this may be a, a more appropriate way. Uh, the rigor of the Apollo method is, um, for some organizations and for some types of defects, maybe more than you need to do. Ishikawa is basically, why is it called a fishbone? Because it looks like the fish with bones on it. The 
risk I see there is that you start slotting defects or you know, the root causes into these uh, bones. And then that becomes the goal is to find problems that fit into it as opposed to finding a root cause, whether it's on that fish bone or not. Uh, for some teams that are um, that need more structure, and if they have a database of defect data and root cause analysis data that says that we do have repeatable causes, and it is limited in our organization, this may work. But it's been, been my philosophy through most of my career is I don't like to have my thinking bounded by something that causes me not to really consider all of the things I really want to think about. Uh, it can be unwieldy. Um, it can be a sorting and grouping technique. You take the output from a follower 5Y, and it may be useful to group it. Um, it may be uh, something that you, once you've done that, that you use to communicate problems to the rest of the organization. Okay, in the full day workshop, I have a couple of exercises I go through. One is a, uh, we'll see it in a minute, a dark and stormy night. Another one is a problem that still sticks in the back of my mind uh, because I was on a customer site <clears throat> and I introduced a integrity error in their data going into a bank, which was not a good thing to do. But there were, it turns out, it was a very complicated problem. Uh, and I think that it's useful to go through that in class. We then in the, uh, the actual on-site class would ask teams of people to come in with the problems that they have seen and we go through root cause analysis uh, of multiple problems in one and a half hour sessions with the different people that were in the first day and uh, show how the process really works. And my experience has been when we do that, people start to say, hey, this does really work, it is effective, and I want to go, you know, we really want to do this. So it was a dark, cold, dark, and stormy night, uh, deals with a guy staggering home and eventually burning down his woodshed. And it's a little bit entertaining, but I will give you all a clue if you decide you want to go through a cause-effect diagram for this. Seth was a teetotaler. He did not stagger home because he was inebriated. So don't assume that that is the problem. That's put in there to condition people to think, well, the guy probably had one too many at the tavern. He didn't. The solutions phase. This is critical because if you don't do this, you don't get any payback. And in essence, if you've got a cause-effect chart, you work the chart backwards. Starting from the right-hand side, say, why is that cause there? Can we prevent that at the lowest cost? Cost. Now, I have a conditional cause and an action cause. I look at those and I say, gee, I might be able to eliminate the condition, but the action cause I can definitely eliminate. That gives you two ways of approaching the solution. And if you have a larger chart, which goes back, you know, you saw one that had uh, two levels, you could have three, four, or five levels. And sometimes the actual solution you want to put in place is not at the end of that chain, but it's somewhere in the middle of the chain. And that to me is why the Apollo method has more value than 5Y or Fishbone because it gives you insight into complex problems that lets you pick multiple potential solutions. And sometimes, say you're working in safety-critical systems, you do want to have 
a broad knowledge of the problem because you may say, I've got to put prevention and defect detection in in different places. Uh, so, thinking of the uh, solution evaluation, what are the criteria we use? Uh, you want to prevent recurrence. That's our primary goal, as I said, with earlier detection, if the prevention is extremely costly or unlikely. We look at the things that we control. Sometimes you can't control things that are outside of your organization, and sometimes it's not politically acceptable to say to another organization, gee, if you didn't do this, as soon as you say that, you might be in trouble. So now you may be looking at prevention. Um, your goals and objectives, you don't want to have it introduce more problems, so you want to think about that. You'd like to see if other problem causes are uh, prevented by this solution. And again, we always look for value versus cost. Solutions to avoid, okay? And I've seen this happen, punishing, reprimanding, or firing individuals. Uh, that, as I said, the organization that actually did demote somebody, the first break somebody came up to me and said, did somebody tell you about the uh, analysis report that we translated into Spanish? And nobody ever saw it. But nobody was ever looking at the actual output of the process. Turns out their goal was to do the root cause analysis and show they had 100% of the defects analyzed. What they did with it, they didn't do anything. Um, any output that says investigate, review, or analyze, it basically is saying is you didn't really get to the root cause and you have not really come up with a solution. Uh, have to be very careful about wishy-washy words like that. You don't really have an actionable solution at that point. Um, warning signs, uh, don't do this, or slogans in the hallway. Uh, I think people get tired of that real quick. Uh, inventing a new process when the old process wasn't followed. It just doesn't really work. You've got to figure out why was that process not followed, why didn't they do things correctly, and figure out what you can change to make sure that doesn't happen again. And we talked about problems that are outside your control, but fault transference to another group as an out, meaning, hey, if we say it's their problem, isn't a solution either. Uh, unless it is actually a correct solution. Quite often that's used as an out because people just don't want to really dig down into why they made the mistake. Phrases that I've heard and you shouldn't use, too hard to find. I've heard that. Say, so, oh, there's no way we could have found that. Um, there are others. You know, we tried that before. A real problem is no budget for solutions. I was leading a root cause analysis meeting when the first thing that four or five people uh, came in there and said, why are we wasting our time here? And I said, what do you mean? He said, we go through these meetings and nothing ever changes. Nobody ever gives us funding to resolve the problem. Um, it's going to cost too much? Well, that's an excuse sometimes. I always welcome facts, but if it's an opinion without fact, you know, just keep your opinion to yourself. Um, you know, that failed, that solution failed before. Well, maybe you need to do a root cause analysis of why that solution didn't because somebody thought it should have worked, maybe it didn't apply, maybe it was the wrong thing to do. Timing is important. Uh, this is a rather complicated chart, but essentially what it says was, the longer you go from the time that a failure is detected 
until you have an opportunity to prevent that failure in the next release or the next sprint or whatever, the less, less you're going to get out of it. So if you find problems in unit testing or regression testing in an agile environment on a sprint and can get to the root cause right away, that says that you may not see that problem downstream on the next sprint or the next sprint. But if it's in a production release, then all of the work that's in process up to uh, that point, you may have to go back and find that a requirements process or a design process failed and you have uh, essentially no effect on it or a minimal effect and the cost to change is high. So we just spent a fair amount of time on this in the on-site uh, workshop. Uh, that's basically the 40 minutes that we wanted to spend. Uh, I've added these slides um, sort of to give an idea of what we additionally cover in the uh, on-site workshops. And I've had various degrees of success and failure with this. A lot of this will depend on what the solution is. If it's a resource problem, then somebody in the organization has got to say, hey, resources have to be put there. If it's a problem of, uh, oh, we punish people, that's really hard to correct. You don't ever want to start doing that. So at this point, uh, we will open it up to questions from uh, those of you who have been patiently listening for a while. And I certainly enjoy the opportunity to uh, present this information to you. Thanks, Ed. Let's start with uh, some questions via email. Uh, first of which is, what tends to kill a root cause analysis program? Okay. <sighs> Lots of things can do it, but as I mentioned here, the, the first thing that really kills it is if you are punishing the people who made the mistakes. Yeah. Um, have you ever have you ever seen anybody in this business that hasn't made a mistake at one time or another? I, I actually ran into one person years ago, but he was blamed for being slow. The second thing is not ever fixing problems. In other words, you go through the root cause analysis because we all do root cause analysis, but no time, energy, money is ever spent on solutions. Those two things will do it right away. No. Okay, good. Um, so obviously, before the program gets killed, it's it may well be in trouble. So how would you? What are kind of warning signs that allow you to recognize? Hey, this our root cause analysis process is in trouble. It's not working. Um, I think the first one would be is that an expectation that people can know how to do root cause analysis and we'll go ahead and do it correctly without any training. <laughs> uh, you know, like anything else in this business, if people don't understand what they're supposed to do, it's unlikely they're going to do it right. Okay. Um, I got off track there. What was the question again, Rex? Um, recognizing recognizing that the root cause analysis process is in trouble. Yeah. Uh, people coming into, you know, every now and then somebody gets a bee in their bond and says, we got to do cause analysis of these critical customer problems. And you have people coming in saying, you know, why, why are we spending our time here and we never do anything, or it's viewed as being a witch hunt or an excuse. I saw one organization where the, I don't know what level they were, but they were third or fourth level management upstream or up, were gold, and their bonuses depended upon the number of problems that were linked back to their organization. Now, 
And you know what happened in the root cause analysis meetings then? It became a, an exercise in finger pointing. Uh, that will kill yeah. 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 That, <laughs> that, that'll, that'll do it for sure. Any sort of process improvement that gets to be about the people, right? Who screwed up? That's, uh, yeah. you know, it'll kill it every time. Uh, what are your thoughts about uh, metrics that uh, you ought to collect? Basically, there, there should be some way of evaluating the defect injection rate over time. Mm -hmm. And that sometimes is really hard to do because we've got a lot of processes floating now around, now around where defects aren't called defects anymore. But you should be able to look at overall productivity increasing if this is done properly. Uh, you should see better communication in the organization, people learning from each other, and sometimes that can be done via uh, just a survey or uh, surveys, no. Somebody walking around and saying, hey, you know, you've been involved in doing root cause analysis and for this amount of time, or what have you heard that's helped you do your job better because of what's been going on? Hmm. Uh, so you would think percent, in an agile organization, you'd expect to see uh, velocity of the team increasing over time as the developers are spending less time dealing with um, uh, fixing defects, for example? Depends on how they compute velocity because I've seen some organizations when they shove a fix into the next release count the work done there as part of the velocity of the next sprint. Let's put it that way. They don't distinguish necessarily that, oh, we had a problem, we put the problem in our backlog, and when they finally get around to that, that's counted as velocity. Mm -hmm. uh, if they aren't making that distinction, then you're not going to get a measure. Right. But you can certainly see downstream if I've seen some organizations a sprint output goes to a system test. Uh, I've also seen organizations very carefully measure failure rates in production. And mm -hmm. there may be multiple causes going on there. I mean, you know, the whole pro you got a whole bunch of things changing. Can you really link it to one? But yeah. in reality, the number of defects that you're seeing in the testing is one way of saying, yeah, uh, this, this is probably working. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Good. Um, so, uh, let's suppose that some an organization has a root cause analysis program in place right now, and basically they've been listening to you and going, uh, every time you talk about things that can go wrong, going, oh, yeah, that's happening to us. So, what should they do if uh, the, their program isn't working? Well, this is exactly what I did in the, uh, the one instance I mentioned. Actually, that's why I developed this course a number of years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, it, was, it was a disaster. So we, we basically ran, I think, about six classes with teams of people from the organization. Mm -hmm. And in that class, we did a root cause analysis of their process. Yeah. And why wasn't it working? And we did the cause-effect diagram because it was a major problem. We went through all that. What was interesting is that none of the output from those six classes was the same. If you looked at the charts, you'd say these charts don't match up. But if you went to the far right-hand side, lo and behold, every one of the major problems that caused the process not to work was identified by every team. Hmm. And I was commissioned then to go back and, and aggregate this information and present it back to the executives that had uh, essentially chartered the course. 
And I think so it, it they, 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 they have a broken root cause analysis program. They should use working root cause analysis to figure out what's broken in it to fix it. And yeah. that, that of course, is a certain pulling oneself up by one's bootstraps argument there. So the, the odds are that that would require external training or consulting or something like that. Um, in, unless people were sharp enough to be able to figure out from this 40 minute discussion, you know, oh, oh yeah, that's uh, now I get exactly what's broken and now I know how to fix it, right? Well, I'll quote Albert Einstein here, doing the same thing over and over and expecting different <laughs> results is the definition of insanity. He also said you can't solve a problem at the level at which the problem is created. Yeah. Uh, meaning that if your process, any process isn't working, to really understand why or any, any anything is not working the way you want it to work, or you've got uh, errors that are being made, organizations tend to have tunnel vision. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and it's not, it's a, a natural characteristic again of the way we work. And bringing someone in, if you will, from the outside, uh, helps that. And you go back, what I found in this one organization, they never did any training. Okay, yeah. they just basically threw it out there and said, you know. Go do root cause analysis because it's a good thing. And I actually saw that in an organization I worked in. We have what we called, I think, blue stars or something like that. It was the critical customer down situations. And they wanted us to do root cause analysis and all of these critical customer problems to make things work better. Well, you know, sometimes it was a matter of what variable wasn't changed somewhere in the, in the uh, program. It wasn't a, a big deal. The $1.5 billion uh, loss I mentioned. Uh -huh. Somebody left the break statement in an air recovery routine when they were testing it, and they put it into production across the entire United States. And when the problem did occur, they failed over every single one of their uh, mainframes or communications processes. What? The company was called AT&T. <laughs> one line of code. Yeah, I've, I've heard of incidents similar to that. There's a, a famous incident where there was a um, uh, typo, I think it was a six where there was supposed to be a B or maybe it was vice versa in a, in a line of code in a, uh, phone switch software. And it took, took down the entire, uh, toll free, uh, network in the northeast of the United States. Cost, you know, huge amounts of money. Yep. That was DSC Communications in 1994. And the, company went out of business, but before it went out of business, all of the top executives had to go and tell a congressional committee why they made that mistake. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that'll kill More recently, you know, the, uh, there was that incident where they, uh, about four or five years ago, where they uploaded a, a buggy version of the uh, communication software, the International Space Station, right? And that ended up being a single line of code, too. And, of course... You know, NASA is about as careful as you can get. So, you know, it's, I think that there's probably some expectation management here too, that people have to understand that introducing a root cause analysis program like you're discussing is going to help reduce the number of defects, but you know, you're probably not going to get it to zero. Oh, it, it, we're human. You know, we make mistakes. Right. But nevertheless, there's no reason why, because it's, you know, if, it, if you want perfection, you should not be in the software industry. Is, I guess one way of looking at yeah. it. But you can be very, very, very good at it, and that's what we're talking about here: is becoming very, very good.
Yeah, I, I like to say that you know the software in which there will never be a defect found in production is software which is never released. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's no lines of code. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's right. That's a real problem. Think about that when you get to self-driving cars. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I mean, we're already living that in reality yet. I mean, uh, what Tesla's Tesla's up to uh, two, three, three dead people so far. There was the one in Florida. And there was the pedestrian in Arizona, and then I think there was another incident too. So, yeah, um, yeah. talk about testing and production. Some of those problems never should have happened, but the point being is that when you you're dependent upon at the design time and requirements time of really thinking through what it is your operating environment will be, and you can never instantaneously train or expect a software program to solve a problem that was never put into the program in the first place. Mm. But that's another topic. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's get to some uh, questions because we've got a few in our queue here. We've got uh, Aaron, a longtime uh, webinar listener. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, he says, uh, you have talked about root cause analysis around PM dev and test but what about during requirements and design uh, bame's first law errors are most frequent during the requirements and design activities and are the most expensive the when they're removed later okay uh probably just the way i think but i did mention business analysts at the beginning uh and that one complicated chart that you know had the uh, the life cycle yeah uh, i didn't emphasize that but the requirements defects are clearly those are the ones that cost you the most and if you don't address those properly when do you find a lot if you find those in production which is quite often when they're found now the cycle time to actually impact you've got three or four other sprints releases and everything else gone downstream or maybe you've made the same mistake so yeah uh, and that's why again I think trying to think uh, no I you need, need to know where your problems are in the organization and have the people that actually made the mistake and peers of that person involved. Now, you're talking about requirements, uh, both on the BA side, but also on the analyst side in development, those would be the peers you'd want to have in a meeting to say, why, why, didn't we, why did we forget this and why didn't we realize we forgot it as we went through development? Yeah. Tough world. I mean, you know, yeah. baseball players that hit 300 are multimillionaires. If we were right 30% of the time in software, <laughs> heaven help us. <laughs> uh, I got a question from Donald, another longtime listener. Here. He says, regarding the old idea that prioritizing and driving developers to go fast is a major cause of errors and defects, where is the role of RCA for the ensuing failures. So I think he's asking about like if, if if you've got some sort of management initiative that's you know velocity you know is the most important thing, um, isn't it possible that your root cause analysis might basically point out, hey, this initiative that's so uh, so uh, near and dear to the hearts of management is actually what's leading to the introduce introduction of a large number of bugs how, how do you handle that 
Boy, that, yeah. The reason I'm sort of laughing or hesitating is that is I've lived through that. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure everybody has it one time or another. Data is about the only way that you can uh, win that battle because your boss's opinion or the grand boss's opinion will always tend to take precedence. Right. Uh, and I've always had the, you know, I made the assumption that for the most part, management is rational. If you present them with data that shows them a better way or why a better way of doing things or why things aren't working, that they'll listen to you. Uh, maybe not the first time, maybe not the second time, but you know they will eventually realize that hey, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you really do know what it is you're talking about. <laughs> uh, develop developers are smart people; they have to be to do the work we do, and sometimes the pressure to get to market fast overrides getting to market with something that works. Yep. And I bet there are a lot of people at Boeing right now that wish that they had done something differently to reduce costs. Think yeah. about that. I mean, yeah. and not, not everybody works on airplane avionics and all the rest of that stuff, but if you've got commercial products that, that go out behind schedule, that's bad. If they go out on schedule and don't work, that's a lot worse. Yep. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what uh, what comes out of the ultimate investigations that I'm sure will will happen with that. Um, you know, uh, we'll see. We'll see what the what the ultimate finding is. You know, and. Uh, um, Hopefully it's not, it doesn't just come down to pure venality, but it certainly does. It's not, the initial signs are not good. Let's put it that way, right? Um, now, all right, Don, yeah, Don's always good at asking a hard question. So, <laughs> the, the, um, the bottom line in that is management doesn't listen to you. You're not going to win the battle. Right, so right. Hopefully, you, quite often the way to do that is you, you get the, top highly respected technical people in the organization to understand a problem and the weight of their opinion can sometimes with their data will override the boss. Uh, I've had some very good bosses that have they haven't had a problem uh, with that kind of an interface uh, you know showing them stuff and they say oh yeah well, that's right but I've had some that were basically totally close-eared. Yeah. This project, yeah. And it's also how you present it too, right? I mean, there's the famous Challenger incident, right, where the, uh, the Morton Thiokol engineers the night before the Challenger launch, the day before the Challenger launch, went to NASA and Morton Thiokol management, right, and said, hey, we don't think this is going to be a good idea to launch tomorrow. And they gave a very uh, unpersuasive presentation of, of why. And, you know, then they, they launched and the O-rings failed and the, the shuttle blew up, right? And then, uh, you know, Feynman, Richard Feynman did that, that famous present, uh, demonstration in his testimony to Congress, right? As part of his, uh, participation in that inquiry, right? Where he put the, uh, the, the o, mini O-ring in the ice water and let it sit yeah. there and then took it out and snapped it. You know, I mean, if, if somebody, if, they, if someone had thought to do that, 
one of the more thiokol engineers had thought to shoot to give the presentation that way, the way Feynman demonstrated it to Congress, I, you know, things might have turned out differently. So, you know, it's it's not only is it about the message, right, but it's how you how you deliver it. Yeah, and you know, if you've got a message, the solution that goes with it is often the uh, yeah. You know, in the software world, we 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 have a different, as I said, different kinds of problems. And again, uh, it's a matter of uh, being very uh, data driven and showing that what your results could be, and not overstating what you're going to get. I had uh, one of my senior executives one time say that the neat thing about you technical fellows is you have lots of good ideas. The problem is all these good ideas sometimes aren't completely thought out in terms of the risks and the end-to-end -end cost. <laughs> right. That's something I have to consider, which is why sometimes I don't accept what you tell me. Yeah. Because I'm thinking about things from a different point of view. So put yourself into the mindset of the person you're presenting to to say, this is what we need to do. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Good. Uh, Final question here from the audience uh, from Amy, um, who asks, is there value in taking a first, a first step at categorizing root cause types to see what are the breakdown of types? And I am talking about doing this for incidents in production. This goes back to a comment I made that I've, I've never really seen where Failures in production necessarily relate to complexity of the problem. What you may see is there are large numbers of, uh, there may be coding errors. Be very careful about coding errors because sometimes it means the code is actually correctly written if you look at all the coding guidelines, but it doesn't do what the complex design says it should be. Back to the comment by Glass. So it could be that we did not understand the design properly. Uh, if we have numbers of issues relative to design that says maybe grouping those together and doing root cause analysis on multiples of them will be very effective. Because what you really want to look for is when you get to the solutions, can I group solutions together that mean I can wipe out multiple problems, multiple errors, with one solution as opposed to having to come up with multiple solutions. That's where the grouping has a lot of value. But somebody mentioned requirements. You know, yeah. yep, that's a requirements problem. Whoop, yep, that's a requirements problem. Well, now you've got to go and differentiate among the requirements problems. How many of them are I didn't understand versus mm -hmm. the business analyst didn't know what they were writing. I mean, you know, it goes both ways. Yeah. Or you know, I heard one point that uh, somebody said, our business case is done by the decisions made by who talks the loudest. <laughs> well, you know, now you're back to what the original problem, original question date was. Whoever's talking the loudest probably is the great grand boss. <laughs> yeah. And you're not going to win that battle sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Depends on your relationship with them. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, you know, another thing that strikes me now um, in in uh, thinking about Amy's question, talking about types, you know, one of the things that might do 
do root cause analysis as a process, as you've just described it, a disservice is the fact that so many bug tracking systems or defect tracking systems, if you prefer, have a field in it called, called root cause. And, wow. you know, I have seen that field, I don't know about you, but I've seen that field misused more often than it's used properly. So usually what it, what it gets used for is either classification of the symptom uh, or a, a uh, determination of where the bug was removed from, right? As opposed to what it really should be about is why did we have this bug to begin with, you know? Yep. And it's just, I think one of the things that you you'd probably end up having to deal with in a root cause analysis class or consulting engagement would be this sort of, uh, uh, the fact that, that software engineers have been trained to think about the, the phrase root cause incorrectly by by the tools that we've used. Yep. Tools are great when they're used properly, but, you know, I've smashed my thumb a couple of times with a hammer. Yep. Uh, yeah, it's, that's why I put that up early. Remember early on I talked about the cause versus the root cause. Yeah, the cause is actually, yeah. You know, what did we change or fix to right. make it work properly? Root cause is why did that problem get in there in the first place? And you got to really distinguish between them. Yeah, and we we use words very loosely in software. Uh, we we're not engineers, okay? <laughs> but part of that, for the most part, part of that is that we're not dealing with. Force equals mass time acceleration. Mass times acceleration. We're dealing with the human thought process, and the software is a social uh, development at times. If you think of the interactions between people, and that's why we have all these different kinds of problems. Yeah. I will say one last comment here. No. I rarely see coding errors. I see code that doesn't do what it's supposed to do because the person didn't understand what it was supposed to do. Right. Yeah. I yeah. think most most developers. I know this from being a developer myself. The, the coding errors are pretty easy to get out during the coding and debugging process because that's just where you you wrote the code differently than you intended, right? But it's the design stuff, the embedded bad design decisions that are really difficult to get out because you know you, you start to have that um, um, confirmation bias problem, right? Which again, that's a whole different discussion too. Yeah. Well, all right. If well, this stuff were easy, we wouldn't be doing it, right? Yeah, exactly. So good. Well, we've uh, we've um, filled our hour here. So thank you, uh, Ed. Uh, appreciate your your time, and uh, this is an excellent uh, webinar. Uh, for those of you who are uh, out there listening, I hope you enjoyed this free webinar from RBCS. We do these free webinars as a service to the software testing community because at RBCS we are a not just for profit company. If you enjoy our free webinars and feel that they demonstrate solid insights into the kinds of testing challenges you face, please make RBCS your preferred software testing vendor for any and all expert services, consulting, or training. We're happy to provide a quote for any such help you might need, uh, including Ed's uh, excellent root cause analysis course. Um, you can contact us at info at rbcs-us.com. So, um, again, thanks, Ed. Uh, thanks to everyone for attending. I look forward to seeing you on future webinars. And thank you.